So, I, we, this week we were supposed to, to, to move on to the next section, uh, the section in uh, Acts where we, it moves to the disciples asking that question, is now the time to restore the kingdom to Israel? How many of you, show of hands again, how many folks do watch This Is Us? So one of the beauties of this show, I, I'm catching up. I was, I was wildly behind. I'm finally in season four. One, I just recently this week watched an episode where they introduced like two different storylines with, with different characters that we'd never met. In fact, Lightning McQueen made a showing in the show. And so I took a picture and said, look, Lightning McQueen is in This Is Us. Um, and sent it to Kristen. And, but it was like random people, random storylines. It was interesting, but you, like, if you've watched the show, you didn't know, where is this going? This is new. And so if the show was 43 minutes long, like 40 minutes of the show was just these new um, um, narrative arcs. And then in the last three minutes, they brought it together. So this morning, I, I want to do that with the sermon, <laughs> which is a terrible idea. But I, I want to, about... Well, about three minutes into the sermon, you're going to realize, how does this have anything to do with Acts? Um, but I want to take some different kind of like narrative arcs. And for hopefully, first of all, hopefully this sermon isn't 43 minutes and everyone said. Um, even the new person said amen. That's wonderful. Um, so hope, let's say hopefully it's 20 minutes. And in the last three minutes, we bring it together. And who will we, we'll make Sylvia the judge. At the end of the day, we'll say if Sylvia, at Sylvia, did Sean wind it all up, and, and we'll go from there. So, turn with me to the book of Exodus. Turn with me to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 20. You didn't see that one coming, did you, Mark? Whoa. So I would say I have three favorite books in the Bible. Chuck, what's your favorite? You told me once. Is it, was that Isaiah? What's your favorite book in the Bible? <laughs> That's the right answer. That's absolutely the right answer. Okay. Well, my favorite is not all of them. Don't really love Leviticus. Um, I have three favorites. Acts is one. Uh, Revelation is one. I think it's wildly fascinating. And uh, then, then Exodus. So I love, I love how Exodus starts. It begins with this picture of this character who we aren't told his name, we're just told his title, Pharaoh. And Pharaoh uh, has, well, he has an economy to keep up. He has an empire that is quite powerful and it's doing pretty well. And, and so the narrative of Pharaoh's life is... We are going to keep we are going to keep Egypt great, right? We are gonna where the economy's booming, we're powerful, and we don't want to do anything to disrupt this. And so so Pharaoh has this group of folks called the Hebrew people. And Pharaoh is perfectly comfortable enslaving this group of people as long as it benefits his empire building. And and if he can use these people as cheap, or we might say free labor, if you read the story, they make bricks every day, seven days a week, they're making bricks that help benefit the economy of Pharaoh. That is perfectly fine because his life is bent towards the imagination of empire building. I love, by the way, Exodus 1. 
It's like so subversive that we're told of Pharaoh, the most powerful person probably on earth, and we're not told his name, but we are told the names of the two Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua. I think it's this wildly subversive kind of insert by the writer. But as you go through the story, then you hear that, that God calls this character. Well, first we're told that God hears the cries of the oppressed. And God is inclined to enter into this story and to um, undo the injustice that they are currently living on in. And, and, and how God enters in is he calls this character named Moses. Or, or, or we might say he calls this character no, named Charlton Heston. Gets old. Never gets old. It's that, in like 15 years, all the millennials will have no idea what that joke means, and I'll have to stop saying it. Um, he calls Moses. And so the, the, the like first 10, 12 chapters then, or the next 10 or 12 chapters are these like, it's like this cosmic wrestling match between God and Pharaoh, where they just go back and forth to see who comes out on top, and ultimately Pharaoh says, get, get out of here, get, go. And so they go. The only problem is as they go, Pharaoh begins to reconsider, understanding what losing all this free labor would do to his economy. He says, let's go get them. And so they go, and so you know the story. The Hebrew people arrive at the Red Sea. They they arrive at the borders of the waters of chaos. In front of them is, is staring the chaos. Behind them is staring what has enslaved them, and they have the dilemma. But the dilemma is solved as God God invites them to enter into the waters of chaos and they pass through what I call their baptismal moment. And they enter into the waters of baptism and they they enter in as slaves and they come out as a free people. By the way, metaphor towards our own baptismal moment. And those typically, if you're going to do a sermon series on Exodus, those first 12, 13 chapters really kind of dominate. In fact, when we did it, we spent majority of our time in those first 13 chapters, and then the back, like, two-thirds of the book, we just raced through. But as I've read over the years, I have become increasingly fascinated with the back half of Exodus. Because you have this new people that are now out of Egypt, but but it becomes clear that the last two-thirds of Exodus, now that they're out of Egypt, God has to get Egypt out of them which I wish I could make that phrase up, but every preacher who ever preaches on Exodus says that phrase, so I can't take credit for it. And so you get this, 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 this like picture. It's almost like a courting season where, where God's got to decide, does he want to marry these people? And these people have to decide whether they want to marry Yahweh. It's almost like when Kristen and I were, I mean, I had to decide, do I want her? Which of course is yes. And she had to decide, does she want to marry me? Which of course is I guess, maybe. Um, and I think you get that picture in Exodus. It, certainly you get that with the Hebrew folks who, when uh, Moses goes up on the mountain, what do they do? Everyone grab your gold. We're not sure about this thing. But I, I would argue you actually get that picture with God, too. There's this one scene, I forget which chapter, where God and Moses are kind of hashing it out. And this is the, the Sean amplified version of it. But essentially God says to Moses, I really want to smite them. I think I'm going to smite them, Moses. And Moses says back, no, God, you can't smite them. And God says, I'm God. I'm pretty sure I can smite them. And Moses says, no, you can't. God says, yes, I can. And Moses says, no, you can't. Because think about it. You brought them out of Egypt. What will all the other nations around them say if you just brought them out to smite them? And it's like God says, shucks. I think you're right. So, so it, it's this picture of this courtship. Finally, then, they arrive at Mount Sinai. And they're going to exchange their marriage vows, what we call the Ten Commandments, but I really think, in, well, in Hebrew, they're called the Ten Words. 
Um, but I really think of are these ten rhythms. I, I think we, I get why we do it. So don't hear me over critiquing here, but I, I think to simply say they are laws um, does them a disservice. I think they are the rhythms of life for the Hebrew people. And in fact, they're the rhythms of life for a people who were formerly slaves. They had no real sense of self, no real sense of what does it look like to be a healthy, a healthy community. And so God gives them these rhythms for them to begin to be habited around what it means to live in a marriage covenant relationship with God. And so they are on the, on the, they're on the mountain and they exchange the marriage vows. So this is where if we were really doing a TV show, the commercial break would hit and we'd come back and if it was This Is Us, we would start with a different storyline. So I want you to pretend we're having a commercial break and we're now back from the commercial break and we're starting with a completely different storyline. And we'll see, Sylvia, if I tie it all together. Acts chapter 1, Jesus comes back and he says, he, or it says that he's preached to the, them about the kingdom of God for 40 days. And then it says, I want you to wait. What is going to be is not what's been, but we're not yet where we're going, and I just want you to stay in a season of waiting. That was essentially the sermon last week. I could have saved you 25 minutes. I got done with the sermon last week. I walked over, well, I did what I normally do because um, an introvert like me, when you're done doing this very public thing, you're like, I just want to go crawl in a hole and not talk to anybody because you're just introverts, yeah? So I go and I put my mic down and I'm looking around to see, okay, who is the safest person that I can go talk to that's not going to tell me it was a terrible sermon? So I walk over here because I know Lorenzo will at least lie to me. (laughs) Unfortunately, Loa catches me. Well, thankfully, Loa catches me. She says, that was so dope. I just wish you had gone farther. Okay, I can live with that. That's a compliment. By the way, if you're wondering what the sermon was about, it's online now for the second straight week. It's a new, yeah, it, well, it's slightly edited. Then I, I okay, I, I leave Lois' comment, you should have gone farther, and I kind of marinate with it, but I have this practice. I cannot start sermon prep on Mondays, usually not Tuesdays either. So on Mondays when I uh, listen to a podcast or whatever, um, it can't be for sermon prep. So if I'm listening to a podcast on spirituality or those kind of things, I can do that. It just can't be for sermon prep. It has to be for personal like enhancement or, or processing or thinking or just having some nerdy time. So on Monday, I, I listened to one of those podcasts. And it was funny that really the topic and the conversation in the podcast was this idea of waiting. This idea of Sabbath. This idea of the rhythms of life and living a life that isn't always in hurry, but maybe even living a life that's full but not in hurry, but, but living in a rhythm where you're just not constantly on the go. So I begin to think, okay, is the Spirit saying something here? And about Wednesday, I finally caved into what I think the Spirit wanted me to do, hopefully. And instead of rushing again to the next question, which is, when's the kingdom going to be restored to Israel, which is a sermon I really want to preach, we're going to take another crack at waiting. And this is my fundamental question. What was it about that period of waiting, it was 40 days, and maybe we might put it this way, what was it about the disciples' ability to be present over those 40 days, that allowed them to then move when the Spirit came into the Pentecost season? 
Or, or maybe we might put it this way. What was it about their ability to lean into the time of waiting that allowed Stephen, when they're chucking rocks at his face in like chapter 9, to, to respond the way Jesus did and say, Father, forgive them? What was it about the disciples' ability to not just rush past this season of waiting, but to take it in and soak it in that allowed Peter, when his whole worldview was torn upside down and he heard the, the call of the Spirit to go beyond his, uh, his religious system and tradition and enter into the home of a Gentile, what was it about him that had taken in those time of waiting that allowed him now to say, yes, I'll go? Or, or maybe let's think about another time of waiting. What was it about Saul of Tarshish that after he has his come-to-Jesus moment, he enters into a season of waiting, a season of learning, a season of processing that allowed him to become the apostle to the Gentile church and, and change the whole world in many ways? There was some, and, and maybe I'm overthinking this. I don't think so. There's something about both the disciples' ability to enter into a season of waiting and Paul and Saul's ability to enter into a season of waiting and rhythm and Sabbath and rest that I think allowed them then to invest their lives in kingdom living. And it began to mess with me because we, and, and please don't hear this as me dumping on our culture. This is almost a sermon towards me. We are not very good at waiting, are we? We are not very good at living lives that are in rhythm. We are not very good at living lives where we slow down. Some of the stats I have here. Uh, by the way, how many of you uh, in life would be honest enough to say you just are living with a low-key sense of tired that's constant? Anybody? The rest of you are probably too tired to raise your hand, right? <laughs> Think about this. Because we are, right? Our culture is so busy. It's so addicted to filling every second of our calendar with another activity we don't know how to rest. And, and, and it, it used to be that you had some of that time built in, like, right? You would go to work. The only problem is, is we carry work in our pockets now in that little square. I, I bring mine out, but I'm recording the sermon on it. In that little square thing called a smartphone. And so we're always on. We're always checking email. And, if we're, and we've become so accustomed to always checking that we now always check social media. So we're always on the go. Think about this. Five, mo, um, average, average blah, 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 blah. the amount of time the average person spends on their smartphone a day? Five to seven hours. The average millennial, I believe, I don't think this is everyone, but maybe it is, the average millennial has 70-ish, I think it's like 72, interactions with their phone. That is times in the day where they pull their phone out to check it again. 72. Um, the average millennial taps their phone over 2,000 times a day. The average person spends 705 hours a year on social media. The average person, if you think that's bad, spends 2,737 hours a year on TV. And why do we do that? In many ways, we do that because we medicate the low-key sense of being tired and and busy that has just become, well, our culture has become addicted to. A story. 
uh, and this comes out of the research for this sermon, and I'm not an expert, so if you would disagree with this take, I'd love to hear it. I just don't know. I'm taking the research that this one um, person presented in a book and, and, and using it. Um, I forgot his name, but I'm happy to get that for you later. But, but he compares the, um, the, the vets from World War II to the veterans from Vietnam. So if you look at, at veterans from World War II, well, f- first of all, after World War II, there was a, a, a heightened sense of optimism. Like, we have just defeated evil. And so the veterans come home, and we have a whole generation um, named after what happened when they came home called the, the Baby Boomers. Because there was, a, there was a sense of optimism. We've just defeated evil. And if you look at most of the studies, my understanding is um, for, for veterans coming out of World War II, um, low rates of PTSD, um, low rates of abuse, low rates of d- drug abuse. Um, they have more kids. It's, it's generally an optimistic feeling about life and the world and where everything was headed, which is wildly different than um, the experience uh, our country had with Vietnam, where um, veterans came back and there was much higher rates of, of drug abuse, uh, much higher rates of spousal abuse, uh, much higher rates of PTSD, and, 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 and we just know, like, it, the, the world itself was not optimistic, and, and in many cases, vets were, were treated very poorly. And so the conversation is, well, why? What is the difference? And so this, the author, um, the spec, well, didn't speculate. He talked with a, a Navy historian, and this Navy historian says, we, we have one theory, and this is the theory. In World War II, when the veterans were done doing all that, that happened over there, what did they do? They got on a boat. And they spent two months-ish on a boat traveling home. And what do you do when you're on a boat? You weep. And you cry. And you process. And you internalize. And you verbalize with your brothers who you fought with. All that you have experienced for months. Versus Vietnam. Who in many cases, two days later, were back in their homes back at work, back plugged in to the regular rhythms of life. And the Navy historian says, I think the big difference, or the theory traveling around the circle of the big difference here is just the ability to slow down and process all that has been experienced. I can't think of a more accurate metaphor for where our culture is at our insane level of busyness and activity and technology addiction. We don't know how to stop. We don't know how to let our kids get bored. We don't know how to get bored ourselves. I'm convicted in this sermon thinking about the numerous times in a week my almost four-year-old and my 14-month-old are saying, Daddy, come play, and I look up and they're looking at me and I'm looking at this. And our kids are feeling the effects. Teenage suicide rate is, is going through the roof. Loneliness epidemic. Um, I, I think I read a survey recently that said most millennials can't identify one close friend. What do we do with that? Because it is that reality of a people who don't know how to get bored, who don't slow down enough to process all that we are internalizing in life, the good, the bad, the ugly, 
that will also not know how to wait in the seasons of life where Jesus says, I want you to wait. And if we don't ever figure out how to wait, we'll never figure out how to live into the kingdom lives that Christ is calling us to, to live. So here's my theory, and, and this is probably too simplistic of a theory, I, I admit. But what's the difference between the disciples being able to, to marinate in that season of waiting and then translate their lives into the mission and, and, and us as a culture who are always busy, always booking the next thing to do, never allowing ourselves to be bored? Maybe overly simplistic, but this is my theory. I think it's Sabbath. Back with me to, to Exodus 20, which we never read, so let's read it. Exodus 20, then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You must not have, or you must have no gods before me. You must not make an idol for yourself, no form whatsoever, of anything in the sky, above or on earth, below or in the waters under the earth. By the way, I think the reason we're not supposed to make idols um, of, of God, I think in part is because we as the people of God are called to image God in the world. So don't make an idol of what God looks like because you are the people who in covenant relationship with God are called to be the image of God in the world. Verse 5, don't bow down to them or worship them because I, the Lord your God, am a passionate God. I punish children for their parents' sins, even to the third and fourth generation, those who hate me. But I'm loyal and gracious to the thousandth generation, to those who love and keep my commands. Do not use the Lord your God's name as if it were of no significance. The Lord won't forgive anyone who uses his name that way. For many people, we've heard that as don't cuss. Like when you're on the golf course and you hit the kind of shots I hit on the golf course, don't like go and say, oh, yahweh, 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 no. And maybe that's it. I I don't suggest you use the Lord's name in that way. But I think what he's saying there, again, is you are going to be the people that image God in the world. You're going to be taking the God, you're going to be taking God's name. So as you go about taking God's name in the world, don't do it vainly. Verse 7. Uh, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day and treat it as holy. Six days you may work and do all your tasks, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Let's go down to verse 12. Honor your father and your mother so that your life will be long, or long in the fertile land that the Lord your God has given you. Um, I'm going to lie to Tanner as he's growing up and tell him that means he needs to listen to everything I tell him. But that's not really what that command is, at least in its totality. That command is to say that in an agrarian culture where your value is tied to what you can produce, that as parts of your community age and they can no longer produce at the level they used to, you better show them value. The, the value of one's life is not what they can produce the economy. That may have been Pharaoh's way of valuing humanity, but that's not your way of valuing humanity. So as your moms and your dads age, you, you, you better respect them and love them and cherish them as, as honored parts of our community. Uh, verse 13, don't kill, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not testify falsely of your neighbor, do not desire your neighbor's house, do not desire to try to take your neighbor's wife, uh, male or female servant, ox, donkey, um, vacation home in Tahoe, anything else that belongs to your neighbor. So think about this. God gives them these rhythms that are begin to form them as a people who will be in marriage to God and out of that marriage they will be people who love, love God and love the world. 
The Sabbath, for many of us, we were raised that the Sabbath is so you go to church. And while I think in, in, in Israel's existence and practice, you begin to see the formation that a part of Sabbath is we do worship. So don't hear me saying it's not, it's unimportant. But to simply say the Sabbath is for worship is to undersell the significance of the Sabbath. The Sabbath, in part, is to be about a, a sense of personal renewal and restoration and rest because you used to be slaves. And I would say in, a, in, in an economy that says if you want to work in Seattle and earn minimum wage and still be able to afford an apartment, you need to work 70 hours a week. There's still some sense of, yeah, is it really all that different? Anyway, um, the, 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 it in part is a reminder that you're human beings, not human doers. It's also a reminder to be community because if you know anything about Israel's history to practice Sabbath, you do it with other people around your table. Kids growing up with other kids knowing that one day a week, everything stops. The phones get put away and we sit at a table not looking at what Instagram says but looking at each other and having conversation. But it's also a deeply political and deeply economic subversive practice in that in a culture that says we just need to accumulate more power and wealth, Sabbath says no, there is a day where all of that stops and we don't have to check the stock market. You don't need to just pick up another shift. You don't need to just sign your kid up for another round of soccer. You need to stop and slow down. And what's interesting about our church world, I would, I would venture to say that if I, um, I, if I, if I decided um, to kill Mark, welcome to the church, Mark. You've been here less than a year. I would venture to say, I would venture to say, I would probably lose my job if I killed you. Fair? Um, if I was stealing money from the church, probably would lose my job. Uh, if I committed adultery, definitely would lose my job. Like, you take any of the, if I worshipped other gods, pretty sure Ken Sr. as a part of the board would need to, you know, take an executive session meeting and say, we need to think about the employment of our pastor who is worshipping Jesus and a bunch of other things. So really, if you look at the, the Ten Commandments, there's about nine of them that if I actively pursued them, I would lose my job. But if I don't keep the Sabbath... I'm totally going to get a raise. I'm totally going to get a raise. The Sabbath for pastors is not Sunday. If there's any pastor who walks away from Sunday thinking, yeah, that was totally restful, they're lying. <laughs> we love you and we love doing this. It's not Sabbath. We have, we have a culture that actively incentivizes us not to rest. And friends, it's killing us. And it's killing our souls. And it's killing our kids. And it's killing our ability in the seasons of life where God says, I just want you to linger. Because there's some things you need to take in and learn and feel and weep about and laugh about. It's killing our ability to be present to the very things the Spirit is wanting to do in us as individuals, in us as communities. So maybe, just maybe, this is an overly simplistic, hot mess of a sermon where I did a lot of different things and it's not tied together. Or maybe, just maybe, 
that the call to be a Sabbath people is the very thing a culture addicted to work and busyness and technology needs to hear. I'll begin to close with this. I was listening to this author and thinking about my own family. And he began to say, um, he began to say what he does with his family for Sabbath. And so they take Sabbath every Saturday. He says, so every Friday night when I come home, my whole family, we take our phones, and again, I can't take it out, I'm recording, we press that button on the side that three seconds later it turns off. For 24 hours, we just turn off the phone. He says, that's the hardest part. And he said, it'll take a while. It's not just, you do that once and you're not used to it. It's going to take you a couple months to get used to that. He said, and then we, then we practice Sabbath. We have a good meal, and we light candles, and we sing the Shabbat Shalom too. And so, so if we were to do it in my family, which I haven't talked to Kristen, she might think this is totally nerdy, but I'm all about doing nerdy things, so we'll probably totally do it. Shabbat Shalom to Tanner. Shabbat Shalom to Parker. Shabbat Shalom to Chris. You begin to develop rhythms. And then they do the family things that night and go to bed. The next morning, he said that his son comes and, and wakes them up, and they make pancakes. He says they make the biggest pancakes you can imagine. Of course with bacon, because you can't have pancakes without bacon. And he says, and why pancakes? He said, because if you study the ancient Hebrew tradition, that there, at least for, there's a stream, if not more, I, I just didn't study, that, that on Sabbath the dad would get up and he would get a scoop of honey for the children. So just rhythmically, the children would have this scoop of honey. They would taste something sweet. And that would habit them to be a people that remember that there's something about the Sabbath that is oh so sweet. There's something about the Sabbath that, that we want to remember. And so he says, we're not going to do honey, but we're definitely going to do maple syrup. And so every Sabbath, we have maple syrup so that someday, 50 years down the road, he says, when my kids die, there'll be something about this constant of having one day a week where we don't answer the phone, we don't answer email, we, our, our schedule isn't overly busy, we don't schedule soccer and dance and fill in the blank, where we, and, and they taste the sweetness of maple syrup, that, that it's, a, it's a natural reaction of the sweetness of a day that we all slowed down. Is this resonating with anybody? Let me close with this. Dallas Willard, anyone know that name? Dallas Willard, one of the great uh, philosophers and theologians of our day. I believe he passed away um, three or four years ago. He was asked what he would recommend one of the people he was mentoring, mentoring, what he would recommend that person does to become all that he wanted to be as a person. Dallas Willard gave a long, awkward pause. He said... You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. For hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our world today. The person asking jots that down, he asks, okay, 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 so what else, what else, what else? And Willard gives another awkwardly long pause. And he says this, there is nothing else. Hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life.
the famous psychologist Carl Jung had this little saying, hurry is not of the devil. Hurry is the devil. So friends, as we begin this journey in Acts, may I recommend to us that we try this ancient tradition again called Sabbath. May we regularly see that we need to set aside a block of time where we are intentionally not in a hurry and not productive. A time each week where we do nothing, where we don't try to make anything happen, where we refuse to answer a text or an email, where we intentionally create space for our kids to be bored out of their minds, where we learn to relax, where we rest, where we pray, where we enjoy good food, God, friends, and family. And here is my prayer as your pastor. May this be us. Amen? Amen. I want to end with an awkward moment of silence. And then I'll invite us to stand for the benediction. Would you sit with me in the silence?